What would you do if you were banned from using your social media accounts or if your content is being censored? Seriously, think about it for a second. I'm pretty sure you'd be outraged. And that's exactly what Palestinian activists and ordinary users are crying foul over. You see, they accuse social media companies of double standards and suppressing their content. Hey everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan. You're listening to Essential Middle East. Now first, allow me to bring into the episode our guest. She co-wrote late last year an article in the Foreign Policy magazine entitled How to End Israel's Digital Occupation. Hi, this is Eliza Campbell. I'm a journalist and the former director of the cyber program at the Middle East Institute, and I'm joining you from New York City. Thanks for being with us today, Eliza. Sure, of course. I always love to talk about this. Now, let's start with some basics, shall we? What is digital occupation? How's it happening? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I think of it is Palestinians and activists have explained to us for years at this point that digital occupation is nothing more or less than an extension of the real world occupation that's going on in the Palestinian territories currently. So how that manifests itself online is that social media companies have sort of patterns of policing speech by Palestinians or about Palestine differently than they would anyone else, basically. So that means that there's much more attention paid and much more restrictions on speech by Palestinians in ways that many in that community have pointed out are discriminatory, basically. Right, but who's doing the policing here when we say policing and restrictions? Who are we talking about? Unfortunately, the way that the space for this kind of speech works currently is that many of the biggest companies in the world, all of which are based in the United States and run by American thinkers, stakeholders, are basically responsible for policing political speech around the world, speech that they might not necessarily always have the full information on. So what that means is that a company like Meta, I guess that's what we have to call Facebook now, even though that feels a little bit overwrought at this point. It does a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> but basically, social media is, you know, the champion of free speech yeah. online is the censor right. at the same time. That's, I mean, that was their line, right? During the Arab Spring, you know, there was a lot of the Arab uprisings. There was this discussion about whether social media platforms could be this bastion of free speech and this place for democracy to really flourish. Many activists at the time sort of said to us, let's uh, watch this closely. Let's see how this actually plays out. And they were right in, in the mm. long run. This is a great place and a really important zone for politically suppressed peoples around the world, people who are living under occupation around the world, not just in Palestine, to communicate, to organize, to get their opinions out there, to sometimes make videos of them dancing that get more attention than some of their political speech would. Oh, yes. <laughs> but at the same time, when it comes to speech that has to do with designations of what is an occupation or who is an occupier, the social media companies at a certain point have a tremendous amount of political decision-making power. So a company like Meta, for example, has long patterns of making these decisions about speech in the Arabic language, speech that uses Arabic language characters, and then designations around terms like 
Zionist, like martyr on lunch. He'd basically deciding when and how and in which contexts we designate that speech as terrorist content, as violent content, as violent speech, when the nuances and the context really makes a big difference. And that's not always clear that they're really accounting for that nuance. Interesting. You know, there aren't a lot of articles out there on this topic, so I'm kind of wondering why you wrote this article. So I have traveled and lived in the Middle East myself personally, off and on for several years. I have many friends and colleagues who are Palestinian and who live in Jordan or in Palestine and the occupied territories. And I remember paying close attention to the ways in which a lot of my Palestinian friends used social media. And sometimes this was the only space where they could really communicate or see direct content about incursions by IDF forces, about attacks that were going on, basically to rally and communicate and to talk about the political effects of the occupation. And I remember noticing that even five or six years ago. Mm. And so when I started working on issues relating to digital freedom online and digital rights, Basically, there are activists in this space, thinkers in this space, much better, much smarter than me, who are Palestinian and who've been drawing attention to these disproportionate kind of patterns of policed speech for, for years at this point. And I really paid attention. Hmm. So basically, the goal is to draw attention to how the ways in which these social media companies are making an example of Palestine online. This is something that's very distressing that we should pay attention to closely in and of itself. But the broader story is that this might be an example of the ways that the social media companies make decisions later on about other groups as well. So this is sort of like a test case that I think will be really incredibly important, especially as we continue, not just in the States, but around the world, to have this broader conversation about who gets to say what online and what the implications of that are. So there's a lot at stake here, clearly, not just uh, in terms of the Palestinian <laughs> issue. Since you mentioned examples, yeah. let's give our listeners a few examples, shall we? Here's one, Mariam Barghouti, a Palestinian activist based in Ramallah. I experienced censorship when posting about the Palestinian experience and developments on the ground by Twitter and Instagram. And here are a few more. Last April, Palestinian Dutch supermodel Bella Hadid said Instagram disabled her from posting a story. She said when she posts about Palestine, she gets immediately shadow banned. She also had a post of hers removed because she posted her father's American passport showing his place of birth as Palestine. So, Eliza, you hear this stuff and you think, this is crazy. There are people who live stream their mass shootings in supermarkets on social media, but you can't post a picture of your dad's passport, allegedly. I just don't get the parameters. Right. So I think our tiny, feeble brains are not really capable of understanding how much speech passes through the internet on a daily, you know, hourly basis. It's so much content. And in so many different languages, so many different dialects, there's so many different cultural inflections about hate speech, about slurs in different languages that we just might not know. 
and that many of these companies are just simply, from my understanding, not really equipped to pay attention to. When these companies started 20, whatever, 20 years ago, I don't think they were really planning to be the arbiter of the world's speech, right? That's not something that they built into their plans as, as companies. Mm. And so we come to this situation where basically, kind of accidentally, these companies are responsible for creating a safe experience for billions and billions of people who use them for their direct first kind of line of communication or political speech. So are you saying they're just kind of overwhelmed? You know, the problem with a lot of the information that we have on these companies' policies is that they're just not incredibly transparent. But based on what we do know, yes, I think that would be kind of my overall assumption is just they're not hiring enough people to do this work. They don't have enough capability in different languages. I think, yes, like it's just a matter of not putting the resources where they need to go. And a lot of the things having to do with, you know, the testimony over Facebook's massive failures around different, you know, social safety issues, political issues is really a testament to the really kind of lack of resources that they've placed in really making sure that these spaces are safe, particularly for people who use them as their direct political communication channels. But in addition to just being overwhelmed, Eliza, reading your article, you get the feeling that there are some other factors at play you wrote about, for example, the Israeli cyber unit. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, of course. So around the world, most governments, especially governments that have highly technically capable intelligence missions, have operated some kind of version of what this gets at, um, the US included. So in 2015, roughly is what we know, the Israeli Justice Ministry started operating what they call a cyber unit, which basically has submitted content removal requests to companies like Meta, Twitter, and YouTube. And basically on the basis of certain content online, requesting that certain content be taken down, sort of using the terms of service that make content that they allege includes violent incitement or support for terrorism. And we have information, you know, it's hard to find exact numbers at this time, but we have basically a general sense that social media companies have complied with the cyber unit's requests for takedowns roughly 90% of the time. And the cyber unit itself is not actually beholden to Israeli constitutional laws around freedom of speech and due process. So that means that the unit itself, which is sort of monitoring social media content on a variety of platforms, has an incredible amount of power to target the speech of a lot of internet users within or a neutral third party around the world and kind of launch this petition to have that content either policed or taken down under certain terms of service. I should mention too that there are countries in the Middle East right now, Turkey I think is probably one of the most recent examples, it's not the exact same thing but they've launched specific requests to the social media companies that there be an in-country arbiter that basically gets to designate what type of speech is allowed or not allowed to exist on these platforms. And so countries are recognizing that there's a tremendous amount of power in what can go online and what can't. And Israel is kind of one of, I think, the most pressing examples of how they're stepping this up and what it can look like in practice. So activists say they've been censored online by big tech companies when posting about Israeli attacks or incursions, displacements, settler violence, and so on and so on in the occupied territories. At one point, they took matters into their own hands last year. 
Pro-Palestinian activists are accusing Facebook of censorship and targeting the social media giant with one-star reviews in the Apple and Google app stores. So how does Israel pressure U.S. companies? Many countries around the world are recognizing that there are ways to pay attention to political arguments, political conversations going on on social media to further the cause of their national security interests, whatever they might define those as. And Israel is no exception. There's this digital rights organization that's been really great in this space called Hamle, which documented in 2021 during these kind of uprisings and during this, the clashes and incursions that took place in Gaza, of at least 700 instances of pro-Palestinian content that had been deleted, downranked, or hidden from view, and often without adequate explanation or without kind of justification. And so they kind of wrangle this reporting process so that we can gather and understand some of these patterns. But these are social media giants, Eliza. I mean, why are they more sensitive to concerns, say, from the Israeli government to any criticism of its occupation than, say, criticism from the Russian government about coverage of its occupation in Ukraine. Sure. Honestly, a lot of this goes back to the Arabic language itself. When massive data sets that are used at this point for these sort of algorithmic tools that are used to monitor speech online were developed 20, 25 years ago, Many of those databases, when they came to the Arabic language, were extra sensitive or sort of imbued with a wartime bias, is what we call it, because so much of the content in news media between Arabic and English language has to do with conflict, has to do with violence. And at the same time, it's difficult to prove this at this stage, but we have evidence, we have sort of like introductory evidence that there are ways in which the social media companies are sort of extra sensitive to speech in the Arabic language specifically and extra sensitive around policing this speech. And a lot of that, my guess, this isn't something I can really be sure about, but based on the evidence that I've seen, I would reckon to guess that this has to do, for example, with ISIS online in 2014, 2015, being really, really savvy at using social media spaces as a place to push a lot of pro-terror content. And so now these companies are kind of playing catch up. They're sort of policing Arabic speech in an extra kind of frame. And so that means that phrases and speech in Arabic language that might just relate to sort of neutral topics or religious topics, saying something, you know, using the phrase Alhamdulillah, whatever, might pick up extra attention on these platforms just by nature of the fact that these companies have these pretty new, pretty undeveloped tools for watching speech online. Is there also a bit of a blurry line, perhaps, between what is considered constructive, valid, civilized criticism of a state and its policies of occupation and what constitutes anti-Semitism, which, of course, is something we should condemn? Yes, of course. And I, of course, would go ahead and note that anti-Semitic speech online is an increasing and really, really dangerous problem. There's no question around this. And are they grappling to differentiate between the two? Well, so the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance in 2016 published this definition of what they defined as anti-Jewish hate speech, which they included on the nation, the state of Israel's right to self-determination and any attempt to hold the Israeli government to double standards. 
And if this definition were adopted by social media platforms, this incredibly broad definition, a lot of Palestinians are saying, goes above and beyond, you know, just anti-Semitism and basically means that anyone who wants to criticize the state of Israel's occupation of Palestinian people is defined as anti-Semitism. Which makes you think a lot of Israelis would be then accused of anti-Semitism if that was the criteria, right? Just straight out criticizing the policies of the state. Right, exactly. And so this is a really interesting example of the ways in which these companies themselves have this tremendous decision-making power. Because sort of with one kind of adoption of a term or of a definition in the terms of service of how they define hate speech or hate speech terminology, this could really shut down a really broad and important coalition of political organizing of speech online and basically have a blanket definition by which a lot of activists would find their speech online essentially automatically conflated with anti-Semitic rhetoric, which it manifestly is not, in my opinion. All right. Now, I think Meta said they're looking at the issue and the allegations of bias and they're working on fixing it. Have you seen any actual changes so far? I have not. <laughs> so in September of last year, the Facebook Oversight Board, which is what we sort of call the Facebook Supreme Court, is kind of the, the joke that people... Right, the ultimate authority on right Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever they say, exactly. So they did call for an independent investigation of Facebook's content moderation practices, specifically with regard to Palestinian content and pro-Palestinian content, and they've committed to carrying this out. But at the same time, these kinds of reviews kind of after the fact, they take away the power of what activists are saying is the problem to begin with. Mm. When there are protests going on, when there are clashes between IDF forces and Palestinians living under occupation, a lot of activists are saying the immediacy the current, you know, real-time updates of social media are what give it its power to begin with. And so if in those moments, that's when Facebook or Meta chooses to take speech offline, when it might actually have this potential public safety role for many Palestinians, it doesn't really matter later on if an oversight board or if a review designates that that was an accident, that that content should be restored, because in a certain sense, the damage is kind of done. What about the algorithms issue? I'm sure you're aware that according to Time magazine, they said Facebook apologized to the Palestinian prime minister when Palestinian officials complained, said, hey, Palestinian posts are being blocked. They looked into it and said, basically, sorry, it's a problem with the algorithm. Right. Again, that great all-powerful algorithm that none of us normal mortals have any chance of understanding. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think these companies have been extremely non-transparent about what kinds of tools they use internally for policing speech. And so I can't really speak exactly to how these tools work because, again, you know, there's been nonprofits and activists in this space that have called for greater transparency reporting from these companies. But overall, the pattern is still towards secrecy. And so I think it's very vague and very non-clear to me at this point, and probably will remain pretty unclear, how these tools actually work in practice. So you think it's just an excuse? Yeah, I mean, these are incredibly powerful, incredibly influential companies that realize that they have a lot to lose and that there basically is a direct pipeline between, you know, certain parts of 
the US government, certain powerful political institutions, and these companies back and forth. And so we need to just really pay close attention to the ways in which these companies are using their power, the ways in which they're taking seriously the power that we've imbued them with. And it's not always clear to me, you know, we saw Facebook recently release this corporate human rights policy in which they endorsed a series of various international treaties and human rights norms. But beyond that, these companies, it's not just going to be a matter of having a good kind of corporate social responsibility kind of platform, but it's basically going to come down to political decision making, which is why the moniker of the Facebook Supreme Court kind of isn't really a joke at this point. Well, in October 2021, Human Rights Watch said Meta had wrongfully suppressed content made by Palestinians and their supporters. Hamla, meaning campaign, that's a Palestinian digital rights organisation, it says it recorded nearly 750 rights violations in 2021. And in the first quarter of this year, it says there are at least 90 violations by Meta and Instagram. The companies play a big part as their policies depend on Israeli definitions. As such, artificial intelligence automatically censors Palestinian content or publications. There are multiple parties responsible for the violation of Palestinian electronic rights. We invited Meta to the show all to provide us with their answers to these criticisms. They said they'd come back to us, but never did by the time of this recording. So I guess there is counter-pressure from the Palestinians and from the staff at some of these tech companies, right? Sure. I mean, these companies employ a massive number of really, really talented people. And there's already sort of been pushback, employee petitions, things like that. Even just outside of the Middle East region, but more broadly, people who are pointing to the amount of power that a lot of these companies hold. But is it effective? I mean, that's the question. You know, I think... Many people who begin working at these companies don't necessarily, I think, start off thinking that they're going to be working on something that's inherently a political mission. And they might kind of overcome or they might sort of come to that realization with time. And so I think there's been pushback. There's been, you know, we've had a couple kind of greater publicization of the ways in which these companies are policing speech. But overall, I mean, it's a little bit of a David and Goliath kind of battle at this point. Mm. It's really hard to put pressure on companies of this size and scale, even at the employee level, because it's how do you even begin to correct this? I'm glad you asked that question, where do you even <laughs> begin to correct this? What should these big tech companies do to fix this? Oh, it's very simple. Just kidding. It's not very simple at all. <laughs> of course um, it is. <laughs> I would say that these companies, particularly Meta, which itself holds a lot of the decision-making power for some of the most commonly used, widely used platforms, should reinvest in resources that make sure that this kind of decision-making can be done well. So that would mean hiring more native Arabic speakers into policy positions. That would mean investing a lot more in real-time human interpreters and translators and linguists, especially for a lot of the dialects of Arabic that have slang that a lot of the MSA kind of databases that exist for the Arabic language are not really equipped to pick up, especially mm. in the lesser spoken dialects. So, And I think these companies should invest a lot more attention and time into the human component of their products. 
And to really recognize the fact that while we in the U.S. might, you know, use Facebook once in a while to check in on our grandparents or to post a cute photo of our baby and that's about it, in many places around the world, Facebook is a lifeline for people. It might be your primary messaging app for your workplace or for your school. It might be the place where you communicate directly with other activists if you're living under occupation or under incursion. And I think the most recent example of the invasion of Ukraine has shown how important social media has been for Ukrainians who are trying to find solidarity abroad, who are trying to communicate with safety with each other, etc. I would say in this case, will come down to these companies deciding to recognize Palestinians' sovereignty and Palestine as a sovereign entity. So the UN General Assembly Resolution 6719, which was passed in 2012, recognizes the state of Palestine and gives a non-member observer state within the UN. And it would make a really big difference, for example, if a company like Meta would decide to recognize Palestine and Palestinians as a distinct entity, because this would force the company to treat decision makers in Palestine with some of the national sovereignty and with some of the seriousness that they've given other states. And it would basically give Palestinians kind of more of a fighting chance, if you will, to sort of start to fight for their own speech and their own kind of ability to speak out about their own lives online in the way that other countries have. Eliza, this has been such a good conversation. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your ideas and your thoughts and insights with us. Of course, anytime. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan. Sound design made by George Elwir. Our lead engagement producer is Aya El Malik. And our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosri. Our executive producer is, of course, Omar Saleh. And I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. We'll chat again next week. It's goodbye for now.